Sorry, I couldn't resist playing that song. It seems rather appropriate. Um, let's just pray. Father, as we turn to look at this passage and try to figure out why you and Moses did get so mad about that cow, we ask that each of us would hear what you want to say and each of us would be led where you want to lead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In theory, one of the big pre-Christmas film events uh, will be the third instalment of The Hunger Games, which comes out on Thursday. Just like The Hobbit and Harry Potter before it, the producers have decided to split one book over two films. Now, I'm sure that's driven entirely by artistic sensitivities and has nothing to do with trying to squeeze as much profit as possible out of the franchise. Um, It does, however, leave us uh, as viewers with a bit of a challenge because we're left halfway through a story and don't quite know where it's going. The challenge is often also the first half is where we have to deal with all the problems and the issues, uh, but we don't really get to find out the solutions. Well, tonight it's a bit like that. Uh, We're covering a story that unwinds over three chapters of Exodus and was clearly written as a whole story. The good news is that unlike the Hunger Games, uh, we won't have to wait for another year to find out what happens uh, just until next week. And even before then, if you look at the uh, the term card, there's a strong clue to what happens next, because whilst tonight's passage deals with the problems and is called Forgetting God, next week's is called A God of Second Chances, so you know we will eventually get to a happy ending, just maybe not tonight. So, with that as a, as a bit of a plot spoiler in place. Let's um, turn and have a look at the first story, first half of the story that Harry read for us tonight. It's a little bit long, it's a bit involved, uh, so bear with me as we go through it. But I, I think it's helpful um, that when faced with some of these more uh, complex Old Testament stories that we do actually sort of try and work through them a little bit to try and remove some of the, the fear factor that I'm sure, well, I certainly fear, uh, feel sometimes when looking at them, you know, how do you approach these stories? In fact, as a long story, I want to go back and make it even longer uh, and remind us what's been happening a little bit before tonight. Um, if you scroll your mind back five to five weeks ago, which I'm sure everyone can remember, we were looking at Exodus chapter 19. And there God makes a very solemn promise to the people of Israel. In Exodus 19 verse 5, he says, If you obey me fully and keep my covenant then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If the words sound familiar, then well done, you've remembered five weeks ago. But it may also be because they they reflect the promise, the the covenant that God made to Abraham uh, back in uh, Genesis 12 when he founded the people of Israel and really began the whole rescue mission that eventually culminates in Jesus. And I think it's very important as we turn to tonight to to see what this this, um, promise is about, because it's actually about obeying God and keeping his covenant. But the thing is, at the point that God said it, way back in chapter 19, the the Israelites wouldn't really have known what this would involve. And so God very quickly starts to, to tell them. And he, to do this, he uses Moses. You see, right after making this promise, Moses disappears up Mount Sinai uh, to talk and to listen to God. 
And he's basically been there ever since. That's, that's 12 chapters. It's quite a long time. He did pop down briefly in chapter 24 and told everyone about the Ten Commandments. He didn't bring the stone tablets that time. But uh, he talked them through a little bit about what God had been saying to him. Uh, but then he goes straight back up the mountain and he's now been talking to God for nearly six weeks more. And the people are beginning to get impatient. They're sitting in the desert, probably a bit bored, probably wondering what's going on up that mountain, probably wondering if they weren't better off in Egypt. And as for Moses, well, as our song just said, he sings rather idle. He just sits around and writes the Bible. More importantly, though, I think they've lost the picture of where they're going and why. They seem to have forgotten that it was God who rescued them and who wants them to be his treasured possession. So instead, if you turn to the first verse of our, our passage tonight, they seem to have placed their reliance not on, their, not on the invisible God, but on the very visible Moses. As they say, it's Moses who's brought them out of Egypt. But now Moses has disappeared for nearly six weeks, and they have no one to follow. So what do they do? Well, they take all their gold, they melt it down, and they use it to make a golden calf, or a better translation is actually a young bull. And then they build an altar to worship it and to make merry. And so their fall, their separation is complete. See, I I think they initially slipped, probably without realising it, from following the one true God to relying on one person, Moses. And they they relied on him to be the link to God rather than a direct uh, relationship with God. And so their connection with him was lost. And then it only takes a few weeks for them to be without Moses, to be without their leader, that they, they then have nowhere else to go, and they turn to a fake God for comfort. In just six weeks since they first heard the Ten Commandments, they've now already broken half of them. And they find out there are consequences to this. And our passage deals with some of those consequences, and they're quite hard, I think, for us to hear. Firstly, in verse 7, we see the Lord's become aware of what's going on and he's angry. In fact, he goes further. And in verse 10, he tells Moses he's going to destroy the whole of the people. And he's going to start again with a new nation, not from Abraham's descendants, but from Moses. He's just going to blot out the promise he made to Abraham. But Moses pleads with God. And he reminds God of the promises he has made previously and begs him to show mercy. And incredibly, he seems to get God to change his mind. And in verse 14, it says, The Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. However, as we heard during Harry's reading, um, that's not the end of the story. Because Moses now goes down from the mountain into the camp to see what's been happening. And now it is his turn to get angry. And he does three pretty shocking things. First of all, in verse 19 he breaks the stone tablets. And this is not just a a fit of pique, but an important symbol of how the people have broken their covenant with God. See, the tablets, as as it shows in verse 16, were actually inscribed by God. They were the writing of God. And they were meant to be a solid, permanent sign of his promise to the people of Israel and of the covenant law. Breaking them showed the seriousness of what the Israelites had done in breaking the covenant. It shows the seriousness of their sin. 
Secondly, in verse 20, Moses destroys the golden calf. But he not only destroys it, he grinds it to powder, scatters it on water, and makes the Israelites drink it. This may seem a little eccentric, but it actually, I think, deliberately reflects the treatment of an unfaithful wife, which is laid out in Numbers chapter 5, if you want to go and read it later. And I think underlines to the Israelites their unfaithfulness to God. And then thirdly, in the verses that we skipped over uh, during the reading, uh, we find out that uh, an even more shocking thing. Moses gathers the tribe of Levites, uh, who have been faithful to God throughout this rather sorry episode, and commands them to go and kill all those who've been involved in the sacrifice, in, in, in the uh, worship of the idol. And they end up killing around 3,000 people. Now, tonight I don't have time to go into the, the morals or the detailed analysis of, of what happened there. But I would suggest there is a principle which it is always helpful to hold on to when we look at some of these passages in the Old Testament. And that's not to ask ourselves, should we do as they did, but rather to ask ourselves, should we feel as they felt? You see, do we feel the same passion, the same disappointment, the same pain, even anger, that Moses felt when confronted with this betrayal of God? Is my love for God, is our love for God, so strong that I would be as dismayed as Moses was when God has been let down? Now, whilst not responding in the same way, I hope, do we feel the same passion about God that Moses felt? I suspect most of us don't. And I I think there's a real challenge about how much we really are aligned with God's heart and God's agenda if we don't feel the way that Moses felt. Because it's clear that Moses was aligned. He was aligned with God's agenda for himself, for his community and for his world. Because he doesn't leave it just at the punishment. But he returns to God to see if he can bring God's forgiveness. And that leads to the second uh, wonderful prayer in this section, which uh, Harry read towards the end. In verse 32, Moses turns to God and he asks God to forgive the sins of the Israelites. And his commitment to that is intense because he says, if you can't forgive them, then judge me and condemn me also. And God responds in three ways. Firstly, he, he says, I won't condemn you, Moses but I will blot out those who have sinned against me. Secondly, he says, that though that he will continue to go with the people, he will lead them to the promised land. But he will still punish all of those people who were involved in this. And so ultimately, none of those alive at this time would make it to the promised land. And that is why, if you remember the story, the Israelites spent 40 years wandering around in the desert because not a single one of them eventually gets to the promised land. It is their children who get to the promised land. And God needed that time to build a generation who understood his commands, who obeyed him, who followed him, and who was strong enough then to take over the promised land and the battles that that involved. And so this part of the story ends in the opening verses of the next chapter, where the Israelites finally, and for the first time in their history, realize the seriousness of their sin and what they have really done, and they truly repent. But that's taking us to part two of the story. 
which is for next week. So that's it so far. That's the story for tonight. It's, a, it's quite a long story. It's quite complicated. All sorts of things are happening. But I thought it was worth w- walking through it so we can begin to see what was happening um, between God and his people at that time. But the challenge for us now is, what does that mean for us today? And I'd like to draw three points from that. The first point is, how do we remember God in a secular world? How do we stay connected to an invisible God in a way that the Israelites couldn't? I think it's actually, it's, it's easy to be quite hard on the Israelites. I mean, obviously in sophisticated Claygate, we would never do anything quite as crass as worshipping a golden calf. But, with, without diminishing at all the seriousness of what they did, because it was serious, I don't think it does us any harm to put some context on it. You see, like us, the, the Israelites at this stage didn't come from a God-centered culture. They may have been a chosen people through Abraham, but they've not had a lot of guidance as to what that means up till now. They kind of had to make it up for themselves. You remember the story of um, Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat? And since he and his brothers went to Egypt, they've been living in a very secular, very non-God um, culture. And we've also got no recorded communication from God to them. So none of the laws, none of the guidance has been given to them at this stage. It's therefore not that surprising when a charismatic leader like Moses comes along, he does miracles and he leads their rescue out of of, uh, Egypt, that they find it easier to follow him as their link to God than to follow God directly. He's there, he's in front of them, they can see him, they can touch him. But the problem of this, of course, is that their reliance on him separates them from a direct relationship with God. So that at the first sign of trouble, when Moses goes missing for six weeks, they have nothing to fall back on. And they end up turning to something else in line with the culture around them. You see, we may see the golden calf as a a rather simple, sort of ignorant thing to do. But actually all they're doing is falling into the pattern of those around them. In verse 5, Aaron himself argues that the calf was representing God and that the worship was a festival of the Lord. And he's, he's effectively saying, we're just doing what everybody else around us does. It's probably most like Baal was the, the, the most local uh, god who crops up various times in the Old Testament. They're just picking up the style of, other, of, of, of the world around them and that's impacting their relationship with God. In some ways, the secular world we live in isn't so very different. Um, There are many glistening golden distractions to pull us away from God if our relationship with him is not secure. There are also many we can use and pretend are really part of our relationship with God, but they're not. They are distractions. And I think we could probably all think of those, but I kind of want to think, why do we get into that position first? And that's really what I'd like to, to look at tonight. And I think we all face the same temptation that the Israelites had to try and work on the visible links between us and an invisible God and to begin to rely on them rather than on God ourselves. It might be a Christian leader like Moses. could even be Mike or Philip. Maybe we rely heavily on a friend or a house group or even church services. 
Now, don't get me wrong, all of these things are good, and they can and should support our relationship with God. Just as Moses was chosen by God to support and lead the people of Israel. But if these things become ends in themselves, if we, repl- if we place our reliance on them rather than on God, then what do we do when our friend is ill? Or our house group ends? Or Philip is made archbishop? You know, I, I joke, but there's a serious point here. All of these things are good, but we, sh- but we should use church, we should use our leaders, our friends, our home groups to help point us to God to strengthen our relationship with him and to transfer our reliance from ourselves and from them to God. Our goal should be to be as close to God as Moses is so we feel as Moses felt and our lives are in a relationship with God in the same way as Moses was. And I think this passage gives us two ways to help us do that. The first one is the way we talk to God. And it's very interesting to see the way that Moses talked to God. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but something very odd seems to happen in the middle of this passage. If you look at verses 9 to 14, these start with God saying quite clearly that he's going to destroy the Israelites, that he's given up on the children of Abraham in verse 10. And he's going to make a new nation out of the descendants of Moses. But then Moses talks to him. He reminds him of all his old promises and seems to get God to change his mind. What's going on here? Is is God really this fickle that he says something in in a bit of anger and then someone just points out that he's forgotten all his promises and changes his mind? Well, we know that God doesn't change. As as we were discussing last week, Yahweh means I was who I was, I am who I am, I will be who I will be. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As theologians say, they'll talk about um, from the beginning of time, God is irresistibly set upon what he has of himself determined to do. What do I mean by that? He is just, he will always, he has always been going to do what he is going to do. There is no change in God. But here's the mystery. God has chosen to accomplish those things, to accomplish his purposes through his people. And in particular, through the prayers of his people. And that's what he does here with Moses. He works through Moses' prayers. But for him to work through our prayers, it's really important that we, like Moses, pray not as we want, but as God wants. And I think there are three characteristics I want to pull out from Moses' prayer that we can learn from. The first thing is that true prayer is interested in God's honour, not our own. If you remember, God has just threatened to destroy the children, the, the nation of Israel and to start a new one with Moses as the head of it. So Moses has been offered the chance to become the father of God's chosen people. And as he turns to God, what does he do? Well, he just ignores that. He brushes it aside. He's not interested in that because what he's interested in is God's good name. In verse 12, it's God's reputation that concerns him, not his. And I think that can be a real challenge for us. I mean, how often do I pray? Do do you pray 
for God to be seen as great. When I pray about my work, my family, my friends, how often is my focus on how God will be seen in this? And how often is it on how I or my family or my friends will be viewed? I think our lesson from Moses is that a true prayer focuses on God's reputation and glory and not ours. The second thing is true prayer matches the known will of God. See, Moses quotes back to God his own promises and his own declared will. And we too should try and do this. To pray into God's promises. To pray, your will be done, as it is in the Lord's Prayer. Our challenge, of course, is to how do we better know what God's will is. And I don't think there's any shortcuts to this other than just spending time with God. Because the more we know and we understand God, the more we know and understand his will and the better we can pray into it. Moses has spent so many years with God and so much time talking to him that he knew God's will and he could pray into that. And we can do the same by studying the Bible, by learning his promises, by spending time in prayer, looking for it, asking him for what his will is. And the more time we spend, the more we will understand his will. And the third thing from Moses' prayers, I think, is that his his true prayer is based on what God has already done. Moses' prayer is based on what he knows God's done. It's God who brought the people out out of Egypt. God himself names himself at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The people seem to have forgotten this, but Moses comes back to God's promises of what he, and God's knowing what God has already done. And in the same way, I think our prayers should flow out of our knowledge, not just of what God has done here in Exodus, but what he has done through Jesus and what he continues to do through his Holy Spirit. There's a lovely phrase uh, by a chap called Alec Mocha, who, uh, looking at this, looking at looking at uh, what happens in Exodus, and he says, "The love which brought us out will bring us in. The God who brought the Egyptians out, uh, the Israelites out of Egypt, will bring them in to relationship. The God who rescues us out of our uh, out of our sin and out of this world will bring us in to relationship with Him." And if we're praying for others, we can pray confidently that God is the God of Exodus. He is the God who brings us out and then brings us in. He's a God of rescue, a God of redemption. And we can pray that for anyone and any situation, knowing that we are praying in God's will, regardless of the individual's choice to accept or reject that. So one way to increase our reliance and dependence on God is through effective prayer. And the other that comes out of this passage, I believe, is obedience. At the beginning of this talk, we played that song. It's a bit of a jokey song about the Israelites in the desert. It was sung by a chap called Keith Green, uh, who's long been a favourite of mine. uh, But most of his songs, however, are a little bit more challenging and thought-provoking than that one. And one in particular relates to our discussion tonight. And it's the thought I would like to end on. The song is called, To Obey is Better Than Sacrifice. It's not an easy song to hear, and I think I've known it since I was a teenager, which is dating both him and me. Um, But it's long challenged me about how serious I am in my relationship with God. 
And I think it's at the core of the passage today. I think the biggest issue for the Israelites is they did not obey God's leading. And I think it's a central part for us about building a life reliant on God. Because if you remember the, prom- the, the promise that we started with, God says to the Israelites, if you obey me fully, you will be my treasured possession. Now, obedience isn't a very sort of cool 21st century word. In a world of sort of relativism and a world focused on personal freedom, the concept of obedience sort of sounds positively Victorian and outdated. But I think in a Christian context, it is still vital because it is through obedience that we build our relationship with a personal God. You see, sacrifice, like the golden calf, or the rituals we ourselves go through, is about, out, is about an outward following of religion. And as far as I can see, God has never been very interested in us following religion. He is interested in us loving him and having a relationship with him. To pick up on the words of Keith Green from that song, he says, To obey is better than sacrifice. I want more than Sunday and Wednesday nights. To obey is better than sacrifice. I don't need your money. I want your life. See, God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need our sacrifices. He doesn't need us to come to church. He doesn't need us, you know, looking forward to communion shortly. He doesn't need us to take communion. But he wants us to be his loving children. He wants us to give him our lives fully and totally and to follow him. And to follow anybody means to follow where they are leading and that means to obey their instructions. It's to follow their directions. You see, we need to obey God not because he is some kind of power junkie who needs to get people to run at his beck and call, but because this is the means by which we become more like him, that our lives follow him more closely. If you think forward to the end of Matthew 28 and Jesus' great commission, the final words of Jesus on earth, and we often talk about it, it's a very well-known passage. Jesus said this, he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. The very last words Jesus spoke on earth are about obedience. The Israelites lost their relationship with God and nearly lost their entire nation because they didn't obey God. And I think we have the same challenge in our lives. Do we choose to obey God's will and give him our lives and follow him at any cost? In verse 9 of our passage today, God refers to the Israelites as a stiff-necked people. I think this brings to mind the picture of a horse or an ox who will not be led. As they pull on the reins, they stubbornly look one way or the other. They will not look in the direction that they are being led. And I think for me, the challenge from today and from this passage is where am I looking? Where am I fixing my gaze? Am I stiff-necked, refusing to obey, refusing to follow Or will I be as commanded in Hebrews 12, chapter 2? Will I fix my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith?